On an evening in early December 2018, the young CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange reportedly dies while on his honeymoon in India. This death is not announced to customers for another month. And when they're told Gerald Cotton is the only person to hold the passwords to their funds, conspiracy theories grow, leaving some to wonder, could Gerald Cotton still be alive? Honeymoon, moving the body, all the missing money. It was like, but what happened? A Death in Cryptoland. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Those are sounds from a TV station in Cayaquil, the biggest city in Ecuador. A group of armed men stormed in during a live broadcast holding staff at gunpoint. The president of Ecuador has declared war on drug gangs after an escalation of violence this week spread through the country. All of this happened as riots broke out at several prisons where guards have been taken hostage and police officers kidnapped. The president, Daniel Noboa, has given military special powers to combat 22 criminal gangs that he calls terrorists. He's also introduced an 11 p.m. curfew. Freelance report her Kimberly Brown is in Quito and spoke with people there. Camilla is a graphic designer. It's uh, actually been like really scary. We've been hearing news in the radio, on TV. We've been trying not to go out so much. I've seen it change. It's kind of drastic for me because I've lived here my whole life. It used to be really like normal to go out on a walk at like 7 p.m. or stuff like that, but I don't do that anymore. I try not to go out alone. I feel more more vulnerable as a woman. I've seen more violence in, in public spaces uh, during daytime. We've uh, seen people with uh, knives, we've seen uh, people like, getting uh, robbed. I actually don't feel safe in places where I used to be okay. I can tell you about my mom, she's a doctor. She works at a public hospital. There have been uh, some threatening to the place where she works. Yeah, it, it scares me too because she's my mom, of course. I hope violence decreases and uh, drug dealers, criminals and stuff go to prison. Some of them have to go back to the countries where they come from and the ones that are here have to stay here, but in prisons because it's really easy to get out of prison here. Others have moved to Quito from more violent areas in Ecuador. Jordan is a 23-year-old soccer player. Astrid is 32 and a new mom. I mean, I'm worried because I'm from the coast. My family's there, so this has me worried because I live here alone and I feel bad. I mean, the neighborhood I come from is dangerous right now. It's not worth going there much because they are killing people. I was worried about my family there. Yes, it's more dangerous there than here. It's not worth going into my neighborhood, even if you are from there. Armed groups are still doing searches and robbing people. They're doing everything. I mean, my family, yes, they are fine. But still, I am worried about my childhood friends. Some of them were killed this year. I'm worried about that. I hope everything gets better because it's a bit complicated here. I just want things to improve for all of us to be well and in peace and everything. I work in a restaurant as a manager. I'm Venezuelan and have been living here in Ecuador for eight years. I lived seven years in Guayaquil and I recently moved to Quito because of the wave of violence there. And I have a small baby. So I decided to move and the job made it easier for me. 
I was calm until Tuesday. I felt a false sense of security in Quito. I felt more relaxed before. But now the tension is incredible. It's a tense calm and I don't like it. I try not to go out by car, not to take cabs. I prefer to walk and I live close to my work, so that makes it easier for me. The place in Cuyacil where I was working was constantly being threatened and asking for extortion money to continue to work in peace. So we decided to close up there and move here to Quito. I think they should have a firmer hand on these issues. Forget about the matter of human rights for criminals. They don't think about it when it comes to harming, killing, extorting, raping and beating. They don't care if we are children, women, the elderly. They have a purpose and a motivation, and we are defenseless. For more on this conflict, I'm joined by Isabel Chiriboga. She is assistant director at the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsht Latin America Center, where she contributes to work on Ecuador. Isabel, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. These are extraordinary, shocking scenes. This television broadcast taken over, as I mentioned, by armed men. You have family in Ecuador. What are they telling you about what's going on right now? Yeah, you know, thank you for asking that. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I am from Ecuador and I've lived there my my entire life and not based there anymore. But I do have friends and family and other loved ones in the country. And uh, fortunately, they are safe at this moment. But of course, uh, what we are going through as Ecuadorians, uh, people that are in inside the country and outside is, is hard to put into words. Mm. I think those tapes right now uh, really, really sum up how how. We as Ecuadorians are feeling, but I think it's, you know, it's a mix of fear, anxiety, uh, uncertainty and pain, you know, to see how a country that um, is such an amazing place and has so much to offer is unfortunately faced with this incredibly dangerous situation and has been faced with this for for the last couple of years. Mm. Tell me how we got to this point. The president, Daniel Noboa, declared a state of war. Um, What would bring this country to this boiling point? Yeah, you know, I think this is a very important question. It's important to contextualize the issue. Ecuador has seen staggering levels of violence since the end of 2019. And this has included a rise in homicides, extortions, and kidnappings that are all related to to organized crime. But nonetheless, we saw it get a lot worse last year when Ecuadorians had a sobering moment uh, with the assassination of presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio after making a, a a couple of allegations against certain individuals that were linked to organized crime. But after that, you know, um, I think Ecuadorians, we saw a glimmer of hope towards the end of the year when Attorney General Diana Salazar um, led a large-scale investigation known as Caso, Caso Metastasis, which essentially um, led to arresting more than two dozen individuals that were linked to organized crime across state institutions, mm. which included, you know, the judiciary. And after that, uh, she herself received death threats uh, from one of the individuals of a criminal gang that recently escaped prison. And, you know, these lead, lead us kind of like to the present moment with the prison riots and the state of emergency, uh, the attack on the television channel, and other, you know, uh, levels of violence, including car bombs, kidnappings, and and other violent acts. Of course, President Novoa has declared the state of emergency and the internal armed conflict, um, but there's currently chaos in prisons with a total of 155 policemen and prison workers held hostage across seven prisons in the country. So fundamentally, the prison system in Ecuador has failed and has been failing for the past couple of years. Mm. 
And now, you know, the question is, there are over 380 individuals detained by the armed forces that are said to be linked to organized crime and is now called terrorists. But the problem is where to take them. So, yes. Let me let me ask you about some of those, the, the, the armed gang leaders who are in prison, perhaps now no longer in prison. Who is, Fito is one of them, right? Yes, correct. Fito is one of them. So he's the leader of a very dangerous criminal organization in Ecuador called Los Choneros. He escaped. And then um, there's Capitan Pico from leader of Los Lobos, which is another criminal organization who was behind the death threats to the attorney general. How much power do these people have? I mean, Fito was kind of running his operation, as I read it, while he was in prison, was able to put out music videos <laughs> while he was still behind bars. How much power... Did he, does he have, um, while he is ostensibly supposed to be behind bars? I think, yes, 100%. I think uh, the prison system, as I said, uh, has fundamentally failed. And this means that a lot of the of the people that are there have privileges and have connectivity and have cell phones and have different, different things that, you know, people in their status are not supposed to have. So I think the level of power that you mentioned from uh, Los Choneros is very important because what has been happening in the last couple of years, specifically to this, as it relates to this, to this criminal group, is that they are in the process of migrating from a local criminal organization to an international drug cartel. And this is what makes it complicated because, of course, this increases resources, this increases their threat and their level of operation. And um, this is the, the you know, level of heightened level of violence that we've seen from the group that has over 20,000 uh, members. Where are the drugs going? I mean, Ecuador has become kind of a drug trafficking hub in, in South America. Where, where are those drugs going? So it's a complicated answer, right? Because uh, most the reason why Ecuador is uh, is such a hub is because of the of the ports that it has in the coastal in the coastal part of the country to, towards the Pacific mm -hmm. coast. Uh, it, the recent uh, report by the UNODC has outlined that, of course, uh, demand for, for most of the drugs is to, uh, into Mexico and also into the United States and North America. But uh, more broadly, you know, it's also growing in Europe, in Eastern Europe and different parts of Africa as it relates specifically to cocaine. Um, so most of the receiver countries, of course, uh, it, this is this is a two part problem is supply and we've longed. A kind of con try to control the problem from the supply side, but there's also a lot of demand that allows these these businesses, illicit businesses, to to exist. Daniel Noboa has been the president for less than two months now. He's the youngest president that Ecuador has had. As you mentioned, one of the other presidential candidates was assassinated in August. How much faith do the people of Ecuador have that he Noboa is able to handle this crisis that is unfolding right now? You know, I think a lot of people were very surprised by Novoa's win and the way that he has been handling the situation. We have in Ecuador a very fragmented National Assembly uh, slash legislative power. Uh, but what we've seen in the last couple of days is truly historic. We've seen a level of unity and unanimity uh, from the National Assembly and from many Ecuadorians uh, supporting President Novoa and his decision and decree to, to declare internal armed conflict and, and the state of emergency. 
Uh, this, of course, is complicated uh, for many people and it's uh, it economically impacts them. But we've seen, you know, people out in the streets giving water bottles and food to armed forces uh, supporting their, their long hours. So I think that's that's the level of, of unity that we've seen and mm. the level of urgency that I think most Ecuadorians feel into their, their you know, their security being being threatened. So um, I think there's a lot of faith in in him and his government in in being able to to solve this crisis in the last next couple of months. We're out of time, but let me just ask you very briefly. Finally, mm-hmm. I mean, there are prison guards that are still being held hostage. You're in Washington. You mm-hmm. talk about urgency. What sort of urgency do you want to see from the United States and the European Union when it comes to helping to address the situation in Ecuador right now, or at the very least, supporting that president? Yeah, I think, well, Novoa has declared that 38 countries have have offered support already in the form of intelligence, artillery, monetary assistance, and even military deployment. Um, the United States Department of State yesterday uh, released a statement saying that uh, there will be of high-level officials from the INL and other state institutions traveling to the, to the Ecuador in order to kind of help address uh, Novoa, help address the, the crisis that Novoa is, is dealing with. In terms of the hostages, you know, I think there needs to to be um, open lines of, of communication between, you know, the, the the people that are holding the hostages inside the prison and the armed forces that are trying to address it. Mm. And I think that's actually happening. But uh, of course, I think it's going to be a point of 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 no return where where uh, I think armed forces are going to have to to go into the prisons and, and and take control, which is essentially the the main issue here. What an alarming situation, Isabel. I'm glad to talk to you about this. Thank you for the explanation. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Isabel Chiriboga is an assistant director at the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsht Latin America Center, where she contributes to work on Ecuador. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.